I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Livewire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, a company committed to healthy furniture and healthy communities. On the furniture end of things, they've got an entire line of sit, stand, desks, and ergonomically designed chairs to keep your spine from feeling like an unattractively shaped pretzel. And on the community side, they'll match any charitable donation to Livewire or any nonprofit for 30 days after the purchase of said chair or desk. That's what's known as putting your money where your healthy spine is, or whatever they say. Find out more information at ergodepot.com. Hey folks, it's Luke. Stay right where you are, because coming up in the next hour, we're going to meet the author of a memoir about trying to get pregnant and the horrifying yet kind of hilarious details of fertility treatments. To quell my nervousness, the nurse handed me two peach-colored pills, They worked. I was in happy town. At one point, I declared to Dave that if the procedure worked, I wanted to name our child Valium. Valium Helfrey. Nice. You know what this is? This is the show that doesn't even need pills to take you to happy town, because this is... Livewire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With author Stacey Bolt, director Lynn Shelton, and music from Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. All that plus comedy from our troupe, the Little Keelers, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Welcome to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. In uh, a few minutes, we're going to have Stacy Bolt back out here to uh, talk about her experience of uh, trying to have a baby at a, a later age uh, than some people do. I had sort of the opposite problem in that. I became a father uh, of my daughter, Addie, when I was 17, uh, because as I like to joke, I felt like it was time. Um, <laughs> parenthood was, when I was 17 years old, uh, an utterly terrifying prospect. Uh, I didn't really have any money. I lived with my parents, as one is wont to do when you're a junior in high school. <laughs> and I think I thought, if I was just older, if I just had a job, if I had a house of my own, if I had all that stuff you're supposed to have, maybe it wouldn't be so terrifying. So flash forward about 20 years, my daughter has grown, she's in college, and I got married recently, and my wife and I are now talking 
about having kids. And I can say for a fact that with all of that stuff that I thought I needed, I am way more scared of having kids <laughs> at age 37 than when I was 17. I think I just know too much about the world now. I kind of have that burden of all of that uh, life experience. When I was 17, I thought my life was going to basically follow the plot of the movie The Karate Kid. <laughs> Meet a mysterious gardener, learn martial arts, defeat Cobra Kai in the tournament, and, you know, get the girl. Like, pretty standard stuff. But now I, I sort of know that people can break your heart. I also know how hard life can be. Uh, and that sometimes Cobra Kai wins, no matter how many crane kicks Ralph Macchio does. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't have kids, you can do a little experiment. Ask your friends with little kids if it was worth it. They will always take, like, a two-second pause before they answer. <laughs> and that is the two seconds in which they're fantasizing about not having kids and yet, those of us who know that, those of us who don't have little kids but are considering it, we're just like into the breach. It's like our friends are in a swimming pool and they're being attacked by a shark and we're just putting on our water wings. <laughs> like, we're coming in right after you. I, uh, I will often drive home from get-togethers with my wife, uh, things where our friends who have little kids have been there, and we will talk on the ride home the whole way about how awesome it is that we don't have that kind of responsibility right now, that we can, like, sleep all night and then get up and go for, like, a leisurely Sunday brunch the next day. And then we will get home and go in the house and attempt to make a baby. <laughs> Why do we jump into this swimming pool that's filled with very needy sharks? I think it's because, believe it or not, it's totally worth it. Because these kids, they grow up into these amazing little people. They make drawings of dinosaurs that look Nothing like a dinosaur. And we still put it on the refrigerator proudly. And then they become teenagers, and they get zits. And if you're me, you feel bad because you know that is coming from your side of the family. <laughs> and then they get a boyfriend, and they start ignoring you because you're not nearly as smart and cool as the person they met on Facebook like four days ago. And all of this stuff goes on, and then one day they grow up, and they have their own lives, and you look at a picture of them from when they were a little kid, and they needed you for everything. And depending on how much wine you've had, you might cry a little bit. The first kid that I had, that was out of naivete, and also out of a tremendously unsuccessful abstinence-only policy that the Christian <laughs> high school I went to had. If I have another kid, it is going to be the result of optimism for me. Spandau Ballet. Formed in England in the late 1970s, they were part of the new romantic movement. And while popular in the UK, it wasn't until 1983 and the release of this song that Spandau Ballet took America by storm. <laughs> True, it was an instant hit, a smash hit. True has proven to be an enduring classic for the past 30 years and across the chart success that is still a favorite for millions. 
So true, funny how it seems, always in time, but never in line for dreams. It's been two months now, and I still can't get this song out of my head. Uh, I've tried meditation, I've tried a deprivation tank, I've even tried talking to my girlfriend, and we don't really talk about stuff. <sighs> I bought a ticket to the world. But now I've come back again. Why do I find it hard to write the next line? Oh, I want the truth to be said. I'll tell you the truth.、Uh, I don't know how long I can live like this. It's really affecting me. And what's funny, it makes you sort of consider your own existence in a way. Like the idea of infinity, okay? I mean, can that even be understood? I mean, really? This much is true. I'm not sleeping, you guys. I haven't slept in six days, okay? I haven't fed my cat. Actually, I, I don't even remember if I have a cat, but I'm not feeding something that I own. I know that. I can't focus, okay? I'm looking at this part in my script where I supposedly said Spandau Ballet was part of the new romantic movement. I don't remember saying that, okay? I don't remember saying that at all. All I was thinking was the sound of my soul. This is the sound. Was I talking just now? Was I, was I talking just now or was I singing? Sands of time on its own. Okay, I gotta be straight with you guys.、Um, did you ever see the movie The Ring? Okay, in the movie The Ring, to get rid of the curse attached to watching this particular VHS tape, you had to pass the tape on to someone else. So the wet lady with no face would crawl out of their TV and kill them and not you. So consider this me passing a VHS tape on to you. And now you have to deal with the wet lady who, in this instance, looks a lot like Tony Hadley, the lead singer of Spandau Ballet. I may not be making sense at all. True! I hope this works, you guys. It's better you than me. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. That is a Sean McGrath from our、uh, troupe of actors、uh, who this week, I'm told, are calling themselves the Lil Keelers. Yeah, yeah, the Lil Keelers. So last week it was、um, the Carl Fresnos. Yeah, it didn't work so well with our focus group. Really?、Uh, tanked. So. Lil Keelers and it's Lil, not Little.、Uh, we're kind of a scrappy comedy troupe,、uh, you know, with like. You own a dog that has like a black a ring over、yeah. one eye. We,、uh, we shoot for Aggies.、Um, you know, we walk around, and then when Keeler says something, we kind of stand next to him with our arms crossed and we go, I say what he said is what I say. So a lot of that. Um, we're very plucky. Do you ever tell other, other public radio shows to dry up? Dry up, Fuzzball. <laughs> Take a long walk up a short pier. Yeah. Yeah, everything we say, we end with, yeah. <laughs> so we have Moxie, and I don't know, we'll see how you guys like it, but next show we might be something different. For now, we're Lil Keelers. All right, there Thanks, he is,、guys. Sean McGrath from our sketch group, The Lil Keelers. Tao Win started playing guitar when she was just the tender age of 12 years old. 
and she spent her career touring and collaborating with artists like Andrew Bird, Joanna Newsom, and Laura Veers. This past year, she was part of Radiolab's Live in the Dark tour and released her fifth studio album, We the Common. Please welcome Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down to Livewire. That's Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Uh, your latest album was uh, inspired to some degree uh, by your work with a group called the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. How did you get involved with that, and then how does that work its way into the songwriting process? I, um, I had the, the great um, privilege of having really... Um, friends who are really amazing activists and because I'd taken time off of tour I was able to to become a part of the, a volunteer with this coalition and they asked me to fill in on an advocacy visit 
at a state prison uh, in Chowchilla, California. Um, I had one-on-one -on -one time, about an hour each, with, with several women who are, most of them serving life sentences um, without parole. And after that, I just, I couldn't shake them. And the way they influenced this record is they showed me a, a level of humanity that I, to that point, had never experienced. And, um, and that became the foundation of this record. And this record is a lot more outward looking and it has a lot more to do with, with gratitude and collective energy and community. A lot of the, the folks we see are, are survivors of domestic violence and, and uh, they were defending themselves against their abusers. Or, you know, there's a, a wide range of reasons, but, but some, so many of the folks we see are, uh, it's, a, it's a tragic result of um, uh, sort of an, an out of control system. And one of the songs that you wrote is actually named for a woman who you met, right? Valerie Bolden. Mm -hmm. Has she heard the song? She, you know, she actually hasn't because there are a lot of loopholes to get the recording in. Could you do like a John Cusack-esque ghetto yeah. blaster above the head, <laughs> over the wall of the prison? Uh, prison staff love stuff like that. I so, bet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm already, we're really, uh, we're in really well with them. Uh, They'll probably revoke our vending machine rights. I brought in the lyrics and read them to her, but it turns out it's not the same thing. And, uh, and actually, the lyrics... Um, Did you sing the lyrics to her? Oh, no. I was too shy. Which is funny, I know, because this is my job. <laughs> but I didn't have my instrument. It was, um, it was a cafeteria, so... <laughs> it wasn't really the right vibe, you know? But I think that I... I think that... The, um, that she did appreciate it, and... and uh, and she said she hoped that people would write her letters because, uh, you know, that, that kind of connection is important. Um, you're going to play another song later on. Uh, which song are you going to play? Is it that song? We will play that song. We'll okay. play We the Common for Valerie Bolden. Okay, great. All right, we're going to hear more from Tao in the Get Down, Stay Down in a minute. Thank you, Tao. See y'all. Thank you. Tao's new record is We the Common. You are listening to Livewire Radio now with 106% more power verbs like deploy, maneuver, and maximize. We're going to deploy and maneuver them later so as to maximize your listening enjoyment. For now, though, we'll be right back after this break. We'll be back with film director Lynn Shelton. Don't go anywhere. Recess. 
a time to laugh and play, and for 20 minutes, give American children the only exercise they receive before six hours in front of the TV or computer. But here at Brimhall Elementary in Roseville, Minnesota, there seems to be a little extra hustle, thanks to former NFL coach and new recess monitor, Denny Edwards. Get him off the ground, Kurzanski! That ground ain't your bed! Your bed's your bed! What's that, a little scuffed knee? Well, that's nothing. You walk it off, Kurzanski. Crying about it ain't gonna stop it from bleeding now, is it? No, it ain't. You rub some grass into it and walk it off. Edwards was fired after six consecutive losing seasons with the Kansas City Chiefs. Here's school principal Fred Storty. Well, when he moved into the area after not finding another NFL job, I thought it'd be a perfect fit. Now, our kids have been a little sluggish since Betty Carson retired last year. The PTA didn't really think his salary was justified, but they did acknowledge that this move could help the confidence of our geology club. Goodmanson! What kind of route you running on that hopscotch? I said blue 52, okay? Did you even read the playbook, Goodmanson? Hey, Murphy, there's no tag backs. Oh, yes, you did, Murphy. You tagged, and then you tagged right back. You better find somebody else to tag. Listen, everybody, Murphy is still it. You don't want to be it, Murphy. I suggest you start running. But some are less enthusiastic about Denny Edwards and his methods. Second grade teacher, Mrs. Grayson. Oh, you know, hey, I'm the last person to talk bad about a fellow teacher, but it's recess. I mean, we just want the kids to get a little exercise, and a recess monitor is there to break up any tomfoolery. Well, Coach Edwards has them running laps and doing burpees. I mean, for crying out loud, some of the third graders have deltoids now. Susie! Bethany! Those my little ponies ain't looking too pretty. You better comb those manes, girl. Comb them up. Rainbow Dash deserves better than that, girls. You keep up that lazy attitude. They ain't going to be your little pony. They're going to be my little pony. You play to win the game, girls. You don't play just to play it. You play to win. Oh, my kids come back to class completely drenched in sweat. I mean, I tell them to hit the showers, but, you know, we're at K through 5, so we don't have any. And the other day, Benny McCogno said he didn't want to do his multiplication tables because, according to Coach Edwards, math ain't gonna pay his bills. For the time being, though, Coach Edwards has carved out a space here at Brim Hall, a space that, for good or bad, is protected by the support of the principal and a strong teachers' union. It's called freeze tag, Zabachnik, not wobble tag. You better start freezing and stop that wobbling. Well, I don't care if it's raining, Zabachnik. Lock that shit up. That's Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, Andrew Harrison, Courtney Hommeister from the Lil Keelers. With titles like Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister, and Touchy Feely, you might think our next guest's films are the kind you rent in your hotel room for $14.95, the kind that show up discreetly on the bill as entertainment charge. But no, in fact, Lynn Shelton's films are quiet, smart, and deeply intimate in a way that Skinamax never will be. Her latest film, Touchy Feely, is in theaters around the country right now. Please welcome Lynn Shelton to Livewire. <laughs> Lynn Shelton, welcome to Livewire. Well, thanks, Luke. Um, you, I read, uh, didn't make your first full-length film until you were 39? Indeed, yes. 
you must have, I know you were working in the industry and doing a lot of different projects, but I mean, there must have been a point where you thought, this is not going to happen for me. I had a very brief um, sort of fantasy that I was going to do it early on in my early 20s. But all I knew about films were, I, I knew that they cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and that it certainly wouldn't be my millions of dollars. Um, and so I was terrified that I would have to be, as the director, responsible for somebody else's millions of dollars. And I just, I was way too intimidated. And I just put it aside. How much would you say technology has been part of your your career now? Because to make a, a, a film that's largely dialogue-driven, like you tend to, um, you know, you can do that now. If nothing's blowing up in your movie, you can make a really great movie for not nearly as much money as it used to cost. That, this is very true, yes. It, it helps a great deal. Film stock and the film development and transferring to a medium that you have to edit on, all of that costs an enormous amount of money, it's true. And, and it means that you, you don't have as much footage to work with. So, for instance, with Hump Day, I would set up two cameras, one on each guy or you know, whoever, whatever character, maybe it was a husband and wife speaking in a scene, and then we would just roll. And then... Um, in the edit room, we would cut it down to a five-minute, you know, nice, sharp, focused little scene. Um, but to give the, that kind of freedom to actors, it's really nice to have a medium that you can just, you know, turn the thing on and just let it roll. Um, from your movies that have been very well received, you've also uh, started directing some TV shows. You directed some episodes of New Girl with Zoe Deschanel, and you're, you directed an episode of Mad Men. <laughs> I know. That's a pretty big contrast, right? <laughs> I don't know how that happened. It's got to be really intimidating. You know, you're, you, as you said, you're making these, uh, these films in Seattle, Washington, and then suddenly you're trying to tell Don Draper that he didn't do the scene right? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, it turned, that was what was so, the most surreal thing was that by the end of that first day, after hanging out, you know, I'm like, I mean, it's so crazy to you see everybody dressed, you know, there's, Peggy Olson and there's Don Draper and they're all dressed the way that they dress and then just outside of the frame there's like 30 or 40 people dressed in like hoodies and you know <laughs> Nikes and and it's just that's so weird at first but then a couple hours later you, j you just get used to it and you adapt and you realize and that's normal and so that was the most surreal thing was that going through all the way through the other side of the looking class and it's like oh okay you know everybody's just, oh they're all just people they all pee and poop like us anyway you know and it was just that really you know I got over it really quickly because they were also lovely too they were very professional and very nice even though they didn't know who I was at all and it were just like who's this chick you know it was an amazing experience just totally really confidence boosting I felt like I could walk onto the set you know of anything after that because yeah it was great uh, this is Live Wire Radio we're talking to Lynn Shelton uh, her new film which she wrote and directed is called Touchy Feely and it's about a family and one of the members of the family is a massage therapist but she am I giving anything away if I say she sort of develops an aversion to touching human skin for a while, and there is a, a scene, I, I thought Problem. the movie the movie was really wonderful. Thank you. Um, a big part of the sort of plot of this movie is adult drug use. 
of the recreational variety. These are not people with drug problems. I beg to differ. It's not recreational variety. It's, it's what therapeutic. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I want to play. I want to play a little scene for people. This will just be the audio from Touchy Feely. This is when Rosemary Dewitt's character decides to bring home some ecstasy to spice things up with that boyfriend, this guy, this guy named Scoot McNary. Uh, this is how that goes. This is right before a dinner party. I mean, do you really think that taking drugs right now is what we need to do? I mean, I think that's the last thing that we need to do. I think we need to stop and, and, and get real with each other for a second. I'm being real with you. But, Abby, you're, you're an hour and a half late to yeah, a dinner know, that sorry. I've been cooking for your family, which is totally fine. Yeah. But then you waltz in here with drugs in your hand and... and <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe me, but it, 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 it feels a little bit weird. I don't know. I just thought it would be... Uh... What, you need to take some sort of, uh, you know, drugs to be with me? I mean, is that where we're no, at? No, God, no. I just thought it would be fun. I'm just saying, know. like, you're just acting a little bit different. I know. And is there something going on with you? I mean... I'm... Yeah. I just wanted to do something that might be fun. I don't know. Stupid. It's so stupid. It's no, a stupid it's idea. So they, I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say for some characters in the film, the taking of said ecstasy really seems to open some doors of perception. Is that your basic philosophy when it comes to adult recreational drug use? Again, I beg to differ. It's not recreational. The way that it actually ends up getting used, you know, every single culture in human society has a sanctioned way of using some sort of psychotropic substance to, to experience an altered state. And I believe that it's really because humans have this drive. It's, you know, it's like the sex drive, it's like hunger, it's like we really need to experience some kind of altered state. And sometimes, yes, it's just to blow off steam and kind of just to, you know, whatever, more recreational. I would also like to point out that in the film, I actually show that there are different ways of achieving such transcendent or cathartic states and one of them is actually also through live music you can you can do it i mean that that was an experience that i had i heard tomo nakayama you guys are going to get to hear in a minute um sing a judy garland song at an acapella show in in seattle at this beautiful space called fremont abbey that has this amazing acoustics and um i was i was transported utterly and and so i wanted to actually recreate the sort of cathartic moment that i had and so, anyway, the, there are different ways. And in fact, I played for a while with the idea that maybe this would be a placebo, the, the actual MDMA that, that gets given to her is, is just aspirin. And that it really is like a hall pass. It's just like a permission slip to let go of her fear and just like embrace the world. I remember those guys. Do you, did you ever know a person in high school or, or college who was just so bound up and so, you know, just... Uh, you know, unable to express or move, or and then they'd take a sip of beer, and then they'd just become the wild, crazy guy, you know? And it was really, like, you felt like, oh, they just needed the permission, you know, to just kind of let go, you know, and, and, and get, and turn into somebody else for a change, you know? Speaking of Tomo Nakayama, who we are going to hear from in a moment, uh, you have cast some folks in your films who are, were not actors before being in your movies. You used a, a guy named Sean Nelson, who a lot of people know from his band Harvey Danger. He's a writer. He's done a million things. Acting, I don't think, was one of them, and you put him in this movie, My Effortless Brilliance. Mm -hmm. I noticed he and Tomo are both musicians, though. Do you feel like that 
somehow prepares them for acting? Yeah, actually, Sean Nelson was the first musician I worked with um, who was a non-actor but a performer, and then I worked, I sort of built the whole film, actually, my second film, My Effortless Brilliance, about, around him. I, uh, you know, came to realize that they're, they're natural performers, and it's a very different kind of performing, obviously, but um, there just seems to be an ease with being looked at, whether it's by a camera or by an audience. Let's uh, actually, let's welcome uh, Tomo Nakayama out to the stage. He's, uh, uh, he's a singer and performer, also uh, plays in a band called Grand Hallway. And uh, he is now an actor, thanks to this new movie. He's damn good. And uh, Tomo, you have performed many times in a musician's capacity. Were you super nervous? On the, on the first day of being an actor in front of these cameras? In a movie with Ellen Page. and <laughs> uh, Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, no, my first scene was just um, Ellen opens the door, she says hi, and I say hey. And, uh, <laughs> and I guess I was supposed to walk through the door, but I, I wasn't told that, so I just kind of stood there staring at Ellen Page. <laughs> And it, um, yeah, and, and then afterwards, Rosemary was like, um, so how was it? And I said, ah, terrifying. <laughs> so that about sums it up, yes. Um, you're going to perform a, a song for us uh, that is in the film Touchy Feely. What's this one called? Uh, this is called Horses. Here's Tomo Nakayama on Livewire Radio. Is it a blessing or a curse to be found, to be found? Is it a burden or a gift to be bound, to be bound? Are you a common or a dark to my run on sentence where I was just a word? That had refused to be defined. Oh, 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 oh,
That was amazing. Tomo Nakayama and Lynn Shelton. The film is touchy-feely. It is in theaters right now. Please go see it. It's amazing. Thanks, Lynn. You're listening to Livewire, brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe. Committed to supporting farmers and serving fresh local food in easy-to-carry burrito form. So good. So close. More information at laughingplanetcafe.com. All right, folks. Time for a little segment where we answer your burning questions and also some of the ones that don't burn so much. We call it Dear Livewire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We should totally hook up Dear Livewire. The uh, live audience has uh, sent some questions up here to the stage. Our web fans have also submitted some questions and now our sketch troupe. Uh, which we're still calling the Little Keelers, <laughs> and some of our guests are going to answer uh, those questions. All right, first up, Andrew Harris. Lilo asks, where in the world is Waldo? I think there's a more important question that needs to be asked here, and that is why? Why is this man so hunted? Why is he so elusive? I mean, he's like... He's like a snowflake's footfall. He's, he's like the whisper of a dragonfly. He lives between the beats of a hummingbird's wings. He's like the shadow of a wolf's breath in the night. He's elusive like what my girlfriend is thinking or Tom Cruise's sexual orientation. He can't be found. Okay, but listen to me, Lilo, and listen good. There will come a day, a day of reckoning, when the hunter will become the hunted. And it won't be, where's Waldo, people will be asking. It will rather be Waldo walking into a bar, dousing his cigarette into his palm and asking, where's Lilo? Andrew Harris. Well, that got weird. Uh, Next up, we uh, got this question from a guy named Joe. It was submitted... I believe via email and the question was if there were such a thing as winged kittens would the world be a better or worse place and this is a little bit out of our area of expertise but we thought we could maybe talk to somebody who knows a little bit more about this so we actually contacted pet taxidermist Shane Eddy from Anthony Eddy's wildlife studio in Slater Missouri and he is on the phone with us right now Shane Shane, has anyone ever asked you to taxidermy wings onto a kitten? Uh, no, <laughs> not really. Uh, however, uh, it probably could be done. Uh, it's possible, you think, from a taxidermy standpoint? Oh, yes. You know, you've seen the, you've seen the little jackalope thing where they put the deer horns on rabbits and things like that. But, yeah, it, 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 
It could be possible. Would you have a moral opposition to doing it if somebody asked you? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I might question their, uh, their, their motives or their judgment. What are some of the weirder requests that you get in terms of uh, pet taxidermy? They wanted the finger of the pet preserved or the, the, the owner's finger? No, their finger. They had cut their finger off, and they wanted to know if we would uh, be able to preserve it. Of course, uh, that uh, kind of took us aback a little bit, so we told them, well, we're not quite sure. We don't know really what we'd have to charge for that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, give, give us a little bit, and we'll get back with I think um, it's like a fifth of a hand is what you charge for that. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, well, you know, it, it varies. Uh, we we kind of tossed it around the shop as who was going to get to do it. And, of course, uh, I think I probably would have gotten the job. But fortunately, uh, he called back, oh, probably half hour later, that he wasn't going to need our service because uh, they were going to reattach it. So, <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. Shane, thank you very much for joining us on Livewire. That's Shane Eddy from Anthony Eddy's Wildlife Studio in Slater, Missouri. And that, my friends, was Dear Live Wire, which was brought to you, as always, by New Belgium Brewing, a company whose core values include environmental stewardship, enhancing people's lives, and creating beers that pair well with people. More information at newbelgium.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Stacy Bolt was the first essayist ever booked on Livewire Radio almost 10 years ago. And this month, we see the release of her first book, a funny and poignant memoir called Breeding in Captivity about her struggle with infertility. So I think you can do the math out there. You get on Livewire a decade ago, and 10 short years later, you have a book deal. It's not so much the Livewire bump as the Livewire Sisyphean Hill. So please welcome her as she rolls this rock up onto the stage. Give a warm live wire welcome to Stacy Bolt. Hey Stacy, welcome to Livewire. Thank you, Luke. It's nice to be here. Um, you were a person at one time, if I understand this, who was not a parent. 
Correct. And you are now a parent. I am. What was the moment when you decided, because I know that you were pretty hesitant for a long time, but then something changed for you. What, what changed? Um, you know, I think that in my 20s, I always felt like um, parenthood was just not a gig that I wanted to have. Um, my own parents, I was the youngest of five. I was quite the late accident, and my parents were extremely tired all the time, and so I kind of watched them and thought, wow, that doesn't look like much fun. So for, a long, for the longest time, I, I was very much against the idea. Well, then, uh, why did you decide to finally go for it? I met my husband. We dated for a very long time, and he always knew that he wanted to be a father, and, and so it just over time, I think that, you know, I kind of came around. So, um, like a lot of people these days, you guys were seeking to do this when you were a little bit later on in your life. Yes. What was that, what was that process like? Like, what did you have to start doing? <laughs> well, when and we... And spare no gruesome uh, detail. Well, I was 35 when we started trying, and I promptly got um, the worst pep talk ever from my doctor, who told me I was of advanced maternal age, and that it was going to be kind of an uphill climb, and it definitely was. I think about six months into trying it the old-fashioned way, we had to start getting some assistance. There's nothing sexier than scheduling sex. Seriously. I think yeah. everybody knows that. Yeah. A lot of people like to use like an Excel spreadsheet mm -hmm. or yep. something really sexy like that. Yeah, yeah, it's totally hot, yeah. What were some of the kind of um, indignities for you or what were the parts <laughs> of it where you might have thought, okay, I, this, is, this is not worth it? I think probably the time that... Um, I had to borrow a bottle of lube from my mother-in-law on Christmas Eve because I was ovulating. was probably the lowest point. <laughs> and you, it was, it was the, my husband who asked, by the way. I was not going to actually... That man's commitment to your guys' you possible know, parenthood is, is uh, incredible. That is a conversation I would never have with my mother under seriously. any circumstances. I was more I could need the lube to put out a fire, yeah. and I would not ask yeah. for it. Yeah. All right, so... You guys eventually decided to seek uh, an adoption, mm -hmm. and, and you, you went through something, and you write about it, that actually a very dear friend of mine went through a similar situation, and it was, I can't overstate how emotionally um, just, just destructive it was for them, because you guys, you met a birth mother, and she basically agreed that you would adopt the child. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then what happened next? She changed her mind, uh, I believe, on Christmas Eve. Again, I mean, you know, it's, it's, they tell you that going in, that this is a possibility, that this really? is an incredibly emotional decision. And there's, you know, there's no black and white. It's all gray area. It's messy, you know. And once somebody, you know, it's, it's one thing to say when you're pregnant, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this child up for adoption. It's quite another thing once you're holding that child after you've given birth to go through with it. So luckily enough, we didn't have much time to really think about what we were going to do next because we were sort of almost immediately chosen by another birth mother after that, just like maybe two weeks later. So we're talking to Stacey Bolt. Her new book is Breeding in Captivity. Um, could you read a little? I would love to. Yes. Um, this picks up right after I have had, we're still trying to get pregnant at this point, and I've had um, surgery. And we are confident, or I am very confident, that this has worked and this is going to be the thing. I arrived in Dr. H's office for my sixth IUI. 
I sailed through the door and into the waiting room with smiles of beatitude for all the waiting couples. Don't worry, my eyes told them. Your time will come too. As Dave and I waited to be called back, I gazed at the fish tank. We should get one of these, I told Dave. That's a $15,000 saltwater reef tank, he said. The words, you moron, were not spoken, but they were implied. Well, it doesn't have to be this fancy, I said, undeterred. But don't you think it would be great for the baby? The baby. It had always been a baby. Now it was the baby. What a difference an article can make. The next day, I was standing in the middle of our small sunroom planning. The crib, I thought, would go against the far wall, the only one without windows. It gets cold in there in the winter, and I didn't want the baby to get a chill. The changing table would go against the window that looked out onto the garden. I thought it would be nice to look at something scenic while cleaning up baby poop. I imagined the walls painted daffodil yellow with bright white trim to match the furniture I'd picked out online the day before. The crib and changing table were in the Jenny Lind style with turned posts that gave them an old-fashioned look without any of that old-fashioned lead paint. I added them to the gift registry I'd just started but hadn't yet published. There's a fine line between confidence and hubris, and I was determined not to cross it. I hadn't given myself permission to buy anything baby-related because that seemed like hubris. But now, at least, I felt like I could start looking at things. That seemed okay. I also decided it would be okay to start excavating the sunroom. For five years, it had been our dump room, the place where we put everything we didn't know what to do with. Dave and I are both very acquisitive people. We buy things and collect things and gather things for God knows what future scenario. We once joked that if we ever formed a band, we'd call ourselves the borderline hoarders. Going through this room was like an archeological dig of our recent past. I squatted down and grabbed a wrinkled brown shopping bag. Inside were four pairs of my skinny jeans, size six. I put them in a pile of things to get rid of. If I wasn't a size six before pregnancy, I wasn't going to be one after. Underneath the bag was a stack of white boxes. I opened them and found the inhabitants of the island of misfit wedding gifts. I hadn't had the heart to throw them out. You never know when you might need a porcelain music box with a picture of the Pope on it. <laughs> but now it's time to get serious. We were going to need this room. As if on cue, I heard a rustling sound behind me. I turned and looked into the crooked, slimy eyes of Elvis. When we first moved into the house, Dave had a small, weird menagerie comprised of a black king snake named Snowball, three geckos, and Elvis the iguana. Elvis was the only one left. I consider myself an animal lover, and I love having pets, but I draw the line at pets that require other pets for food. <laughs> the day I discovered a Tupperware container full of baby mice in our freezer was the day Snowball was introduced to the good people of Craigslist. And the geckos, cute as they were, ate live crickets, which are gross. So Elvis, the herbivore, was the last of the exotic pets. He lived in a cage that had been constructed long before he reached his full size, now at more than five feet long, including his tail. The poor thing was cramped and grumpy. Elvis needed a new home, and I needed a nursery that didn't have a reptile in it. I summoned Dave to the dump room. New project, I said, sounding like a cross between a cheerleader and a preschool teacher. Oh, yeah? Dave asked, skeptical. We need to clean this room out now. Why? Elvis needs to go someplace else, I said. Why? Are you kidding me? I asked. The preschool teacher had left for the day, and the cheerleader, as we all know, was really a bitch. <laughs> you don't really think it's okay to have an iguana in a baby's room, do you? My voice was rising in pitch with every syllable. 
wait, what? Dave, this is not acceptable. You have to do something about this. Eventually, yes, we, we do need to do something about Elvis, he said very slowly. But we don't even know if you're pregnant. Yes, we do, I said. Honey, yes, we do, I said, handing him a bag of old comic books. Dave had not followed me to the land of certainty, so he was not motivated to drop everything else on his plate in order to do what I wanted him to do. This bugged the living out of me because I knew that even when we got our pregnancy confirmation, which would be any day now, he would take most, if not all, of the ensuing time to get off his ass and clean out his stuff, living and otherwise. I could picture myself in the beginning stages of labor, bag-packed, standing by the door, while Dave carefully sifted through every comic book and placed each one in a protective plastic sleeve. Do we have to go right now, he'd ask. I'd really like some more time to go through these. You had nine months to go through them, I would say, through clenched teeth. Your water just broke, he'd say, not even bothering to look at me. We've got, like, hours before anything really happens. You worry too much. And then I would kill him. Not with my bare hands, because I would be too fat to reach down to where he was squatting on the floor amongst his X-Men. Instead, I would knock him down with my overnight bag, and then I would step on his throat, unleashing the full force of my pregnant fury, not to mention my considerable weight, on his fragile windpipe. I really hate it when things don't go my way. That's Stacey Bolt reading from Breeding in Captivity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mary, Mary, come out here. What is it, Bob? Wait, what's going on? Well, if you're referring to the elephants, well, good news, we're now an elephant sanctuary. Bob, but we don't know anything about elephants. (laughs) That's why I hired an expert. His name is Gary. Gary, come here. You're going to love him. Gary, this is my wife, Mary. Sean. This is the sound of my soul. It is still there. It's still there. 71 days and counting, and it's still there. Damn it, Sean. We're doing a sketch. Andrew, this sketch is terrible, okay? And you know it. Okay. What are we even doing up here in the first place? I'm tired of this charade. Comedy? Really? Sketch comedy? Are we trying to create ephemeral pockets of joy in an otherwise sea of darkness? With a thrill in my head and a pill on my tongue. Where songs can get trapped forever and you can't do anything about it. This is the sound of my soul. Do I still have to stand here? If I do, you do. Take your seaside arms and write the next line. What does that even mean when you think about it? Seaside Arms? They wrote that into the song, and it was a big hit. Seaside Arms. Seriously, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I don't care about anything. Obviously, the ring thing didn't work, because I still have it. Somebody do something, please. Sean, Sean, Sean. Please. Sean, I got this, okay? And you're going to thank me later. Johnny? Oh, Oh, seriously? You guys, seriously, there is no other way. Sean, I need you to trust me on this. It's like putting out a fire with gasoline. This is crap. You set my soul sky high when your loving starts. Bug into my brain. This sucks. Bang, bang, bang till my feet do the same. Something's bugging you. Something ain't right. The best friend told me what you did last night. Left me sleeping in my bed. 
I was dreaming but sharing with you instead. Wake me up before you go, go. Don't leave me hanging on like a yo-yo. Burbank, you've done it. You've done it, Burbank, you magnificent bastard. Thank you. You're welcome, everybody. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you. Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, Laura Faye Smith, and the sound stylings of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. That's right. This is Live Wire Radio. Please put your hands together for our musical guests for the show, Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. A villain, a villain, and all they had was me. All they wanted was a villain, a villain, so then they just took me.
Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. And this has been Livewire. Thanks for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Stacey Bolt, Lynn Shelton, Shane, Eddie, and Tao in the Get Down, Stay Down. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided in part by the Oregon Arts Commission and the National Endowment for the Arts, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and Work for Art. Plus, listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy troupe is Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hameister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and me. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house sound is done by Graham Nystrom. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. More information about listening to the show or becoming a member of Livewire can be found at livewireradio.org. And you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Plus, find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.